Please turn to Luke uh, chapter 23, Luke 23 verses 44 through 49 as our text this evening. Luke 23 beginning at verse 44, I invite everyone to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated and let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and Father, we come uh, now to your word, and we come to one of the most important portions of your word, describing uh, the death of your Son, our Savior. Uh, And we desire that uh, we would better understand these things, that we would better appreciate them, uh, that we would receive the sacrifice that you have appointed by faith. So Holy Spirit, come and and give us uh, spiritual illumination and reception of this word this evening, uh, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this evening, brothers and sisters, we arrive in the Gospel of Luke at one of the most solemn events recorded in the Gospel, and truly one of the most solemn events in all of human history. And we should not approach this narrative in a, the way that a detached historian would study an ancient document, or the way that an archaeologist would study an old artifact, Uh, It may be that an archaeologist is interested in such an artifact, but that artifact does not change his life when he comes across it. But as we come face to face with the Word of God, I remind us that the Word of God is living and active. This is the uh, ever-living Word that speaks to us here in the present, even though it describes events that happened centuries ago. And the truth of these events, these important historical events, They are of the utmost personal importance for each of us. The death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are the central events of the gospel, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. And you remember how Paul summarized the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 as he reminded the Corinthian church, he said, these are the things of first importance. You must hold fast to these things. He said, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. These are the things of first importance for us, and our response to what we read here is determinative not only for our personal identity, whether we are Christians or not, but also then for our personal destiny. Where, where are we heading? 
Uh, are we redeemed by the Lamb of God, or are we not? Have we not received this message? So these, these things are of great importance to us, and so I encourage each of us uh, to listen closely to uh, the words of this passage and to seek to understand and receive them. So I want to give our attention to three details in this passage tonight, three details that Luke gives us. The first is that we will give our attention to the darkness that is described as descending upon the whole land. It says the whole land was dark for a period of three hours. Secondly, we want to give our attention to the rending of the veil within the temple, that moment at which the This giant veil was torn within the temple precincts miraculously. That will be the second thing that we'll look at. And then the third is the centurion's confession of faith in this passage. He describes Jesus. He says, truly, this was a righteous man. And so we'll look at those three details here tonight as we meditate upon this passage. So in verse 44 and 45, Luke speaks about how the darkness had descended upon the land. It says, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened. For three whole hours from about 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., Jerusalem and the surrounding land, we don't know quite how much, but at least we know Jerusalem was covered, the land was covered, for three hours in the middle of the day. I mean, think about what that would be like. Here you are on a, think of a spring day, and it's, it's noon, and you're outside, and you're eating, and the sun is up, and there's not a cloud in the sky, but then suddenly everything goes dark, and it goes dark for three hours. Some of us had the opportunity to witness the recent eclipse uh, that took place nearby. I think, Neil, I think you may have gone to see that, if I recall correctly. And some of us, even here in Colorado, got to see a little bit of a piece of it. And even what we saw was a bit eerie. We thought, even just for a few minutes, this is very strange. Where has the sun gone? And everything's gone cold. And it was very uh, strange to us and unfamiliar. Well, imagine three hours of darkness descending upon the land. There had been all of these people before the cross of Christ previous to that moment. They had been blaspheming him and deriding him and mocking him. And the chief priests had said, if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you come down from that cross? And they had mocked him. But I think that when the darkness fell, fell upon the land, that there was probably a new silence that settled upon the crowds, seeking to understand what was taking place around them. It would have been a fearful sign to them that this crucifixion was not the crucifixion of some ordinary robber, some standard uh, situation where another criminal of the Roman Empire was being put upon a cross, but that something very significant was happening around them. What was taking place on Golgotha that day was more than the Jews getting their way with a man that they thought was a blasphemer. Know that when the darkness fell upon the land, it was a sign of the judgment of God against sin. In reality, what was taking place was that God the Father was judging the sins of the world. He was bringing upon His Son the wrath that was due for sin. What was the purpose of this darkness then? Well, I, I think it was a sign of God's judgment. 
You will often find in the the Bible, especially if you read the prophets, that the prophets would often speak of the day of the Lord's judgment, and they would say things like, it is a day of darkness and not light. And so if they had any sense of what these things meant, to see three hours of darkness fall upon the land was a fearful sign of the judgment of God. And there was no natural explanation for this. Uh, Historians and astronomers have often debated how exactly did this happen? What was the actual astronomical phenomena that explains this three hours of darkness in the middle of the day? Well, it could not be an eclipse. Uh, part of the reason being that at Passover you have a full moon, so astronomically it wouldn't have worked to have that. And eclipses don't last that long in that kind of place. And so from the standpoint of observational science, there was no way to explain this except for Uh, The appropriate explanation is that this is a miraculous sign of God that was very important in communicating the meaning of this important event. God, of course, can suspend the laws of nature at any time. He can, uh, that is what a miracle is. God has these laws of nature that he's put in place, but he can suspend them for any reason, uh, should he so choose to do so. And what was taking place was that Jesus, the Son of God, was experiencing the judgment of God against sin. He was the anointed substitute. He himself was the Passover lamb being sacrificed as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we read of some of the things that Jesus said upon the cross. We'll we'll look at his words here in Luke, but for a moment I want to go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark 15, verse 34. You remember that one of the things that Jesus said was that he quoted Psalm 22. At the ninth hour, towards the the period at which he breathed his last, it it says in Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We remember that the Lord often spoke words of Scripture, but especially upon the cross, He was there and He was speaking the truth of the Scriptures. He was comforting Himself with the Psalms and He was expressing lament also with the Psalms. Certainly this lament of Psalm 22, I think, gives us some insight to what Jesus was experiencing upon the cross. Uh, Here in, in the words of Psalm 22, He's expressing a sense of forsakenness. My God, why have you forsaken me? And when we hear words like this from our Lord upon the cross, we are, we are confronted with mystery. We are confronted with something very difficult to explain. And we ask the question, how could Jesus, the Son of God, who existed eternally in fellowship with God the Father, have ever said such words? How, he, how could he say that he was forsaken by God? It's difficult to understand how how this makes sense. And and I would note one thing, that Jesus did not say, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? It's noteworthy that he didn't say that. In fact, he says in Psalm 31, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And so it's not as if there is some sort of rupture in the relationship of the Trinity taking place here. But what we at the very least are seeing, to the degree that we could perhaps explain it, is that Jesus is experiencing in himself the curse of sin. And the curse of sin involves a separation 
between us and God. We know that that's what Isaiah 59 says, that our sins make a separation between us and God. And so for a time, Jesus was experiencing something of that separation as he bore the weight of the sins of his people upon himself. He was experiencing a kind of forsakenness as he bore the wrath of God. God is perfectly holy There's no taint of sin in God whatsoever, and he is of purer eyes than to behold sin. And remember, if if you or I were to get what we deserve, it would mean separation from God forever. The Bible says that for those that do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will suffer destruction and eternal separation from God cast into outer darkness. And Jesus was experiencing this upon the cross. As Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is what Jesus, I think, is expressing in his experience as the sinless substitute now becoming sin for us. Uh, And this is all, of course, part of God's divine plan. This is what Jesus had been sent for. He knew that this was his calling. He was a ransom for sin. As Mark 10, verse 45 says, we get a few hints of this in the Gospels before his death. He had, of course, had... He had predicted to his disciples that he was going to die and he would rise again, but sometimes he didn't tell them the significance of why that was to take place. But in Mark 10, verse 45, he he gives a hint. He, He tells them what he was coming to do. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to serve how? To give his life as a ransom for many. That is to say, a ransom is one who pays the price to set another free. Jesus paid the price to release us from sin and judgment and death. And so as you observe this situation, as you see in your mind's eye the darkness upon the land, as you hear Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We learn from this how we need to think about sin. Sin is not a light thing. Sin is not a a, a trifling matter of little consequence. Sin is a very serious and eternally consequential thing. So in the cry of Jesus, we see the seriousness of sin. In the darkness upon the land, we see the seriousness of sin. And as we we sometimes sing in the, the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. You must see that as we come to the narrative of the cross that you cannot make sense of what is taking place unless you understand the gravity of sin and the holiness of God. It won't make any sense to you what's taking place. It's one of the reasons that when you present the gospel message to people, they often scoff or do not understand or 
cannot make sense of it because they do not have the precondition of knowledge to know, unless you, of course, deliver it to them, that sin is a serious thing, that the holiness of God is a serious thing, and that God has done something about the problem of sin. And so we are sobered, I think, by this account as we come face to face with it. But in this account, we also find hope. We are, even as we are sobered, we are to find joy and hope in the cross of Christ because it becomes the thing that we boast in. Jesus Christ endured the pains of death and hell and the judgment of God upon sin so that if you receive him, you put your trust in Him, you repent of your sins, and you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The prophet Isaiah, prophesying hundreds of years before this event, he told us of what Jesus would accomplish in this event. He told us of the suffering righteous servant. He said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Thanks be to God, brothers and sisters. It would have been just for God to have left this world to perish in its sins, but instead He made a plan and He accomplished that plan through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, And so that we ourselves can find healing from our deepest malady, the malady of sin. So that is what we see, I think, from the darkness upon the land. But then next we we see Luke describing for us how the veil of the temple was torn in two. Verse 45. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. You'll recall that in the Gospel of John, the last words of Christ in the Gospel of John are, it is finished. It is finished. And then he breathes his last And what Jesus meant when he said it is finished was that the debt of sin for the salvation of his people had been fully paid. He had accomplished his Father's will as the sin-bearing substitute and he had made a way for us into the holy place, ripped the veil apart so that we might draw near to God. What happened when Jesus breathed his last, when that that veil in the temple was torn in two, is an event of the utmost significance. It is so important for us to understand the miraculous work of God in this moment. Mark's gospel gives us a detail about this. It says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark tells us that specific detail. And that's important to understand because... According to historical record, that inner veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place, what we call the Holy of Holies, it was perhaps 30 feet in height. It's a very, very large veil. Uh, the historical record tells us it was a very thick woven fabric. It was not something that, it wasn't like one of these really thin pieces of, of fabric that you can see through that you just kind of rip with your hand. This, This is a very large piece of woven fabric. You would have needed to get a ladder, a really tall ladder, and climb to the very top with a very large cutting instrument and work your way all the way down that fabric. And you know the priest would have never let you do that, right? You could have never entered into such a place and gotten away with such a crime. 
And remember also that the priests were there every day. They had the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. Is it possible that at 3 p.m. the priests are there preparing the evening sacrifice and they see this happen? It's possible. I don't, we don't know whether there was anybody in there when the moment that the veil ripped, but it is certainly possible. And if they weren't there, they would have arrived very shortly thereafter and they would have had their mouths drop as they were looking right into the Holy of Holies and think, what happened? What has taken place? It would not have been easy, as I said, to have entered it and done it yourself as some sort of prank or crime. This was a miraculous work of God. There was nobody that did this. Obviously, the Gospels say that. Even in the Gospels, it's in the passive voice. It was rent. It's not like it rented itself. It's not like anybody else did it. It was rent by God as Jesus died and breathed his last. And so that veil, this this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was uh, such an important symbol of the separation that sin produces. And it, it harkens back all the way to the Garden of Eden. We remember that after Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the Garden. They were sent into a sort of exile. It's true that God didn't abandon them. He had a plan of redemption for them. But they were exiled from that closeness of fellowship, that presence of walking with God in the Garden. They could not do that any longer in that same way. And it was by God's appointment that the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant had a a visual picture of this for them, that they recognized that God was a holy God and that they could only draw so close. And that as we read in Leviticus 16, uh, even the high priest, he could not come near at any time. The warning was given. It said, tell Aaron not to come at any time lest he die. Even Aaron and the succeeding high priest, they didn't have that much access. It's pretty limited access that they had. And and what we read in Leviticus 16 earlier was that day of atonement, that very important uh, festival. It was a a solemn festival concerning uh, God's covering of the people's sins. And, And it was in that event where Aaron was appointed then to go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. He was to take that blood sacrifice, sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, symbolizing God covering our transgressions of the law. And then, of course, there was the scapegoat as well that was sent out, removing the sins far away from the people. And so this separation that was set forth in the veil was a picture for us of exactly what Isaiah 59 is telling us about, that there is a separation. Sin produces this separation. And so for centuries, uh, every day of atonement would come around, and every year the people would be reminded once again that there was a separation. And I'm sure that the the children of Israel were so grateful as the the promises of the Day of Atonement were presented. They were reminded that their sins were forgiven by a merciful God. And that as the the children of Israel watched that scapegoat and they put the hand upon the scapegoat and they would leave and they thought, oh, thanks be to God, our sins are removed. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And they were experiencing something of the promises of the gospel. 
But then when they saw Aaron go into the most holy place and they realized they couldn't go there, they thought there's still a problem. That's what Hebrews tells us. It says that in the law there was a reminder of sins every year. Every year came around and there was a reminder there's still a problem. Where is the sacrifice appointed that will really do away with this problem? And so when the curtain of the temple was miraculously torn in two from top to bottom, the priests of the temple and all the people would have heard about this event, and clearly it was recorded in the Gospels for us, and they would have wondered, what happened this day? What has taken place? Who was this man who had been crucified upon a hill outside Jerusalem? Who was this Jesus who claimed to be uh, the Messiah? What does this darkness mean? And And we know that there was even other signs that took place. There was earthquake. There was the resurrection from the dead of some of the saints recorded in Matthew 27. And all of these things taking place would have been a big wake-up call for the people of Israel to say, "What what is taking place today? And so what we need to take, brothers and sisters, from this tearing of the temple curtain is, is to recognize that your sin, which would otherwise separate you from God forever, is now dealt with fully, finally, in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, it spends much time upon expounding the significance of this, the implications of this for our spiritual lives. Uh, Hebrews 9, verses 7 through 8, the author, he says, uh, into the second part, that is the Holy of Holies, The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. So he says this was a message from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wanted the people of God to know the way is not open yet. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 11 of chapter 9. He says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now you might say, now wait a minute, Jesus did not walk into that temple with his sacrifice. He did not get off the cross and walk into that physical temple and drop his blood upon the mercy seat. Well, you'd be right about that, right? That's very important to recognize. He entered into the real most holy place. The, the, the one on earth was just a picture. It was like a, it was a model <laughs> in essence, right? We have these, sometimes people have models of buildings and we, we have to distinguish this is not the real thing. It's a picture, it's an accurate picture to some degree. But that's what it was with the earthly temple. It was a model, a picture of the real Holy of Holies. Jesus, he ascended with his eternal sacrifice having been obtained, and he went back to the Father, taking that redemption with him and making a way for us to follow that in his footsteps, to enter into that same presence that he entered into. And sometimes I wish we had a time machine so that we could go back to visit some of those days of atonement so that we could really feel what it's like not to have that access, to really experience it. I guess we did that at the Czech conference. We had the tabernacle set up. That was part of the goal there. But as we read the scriptures, that's what we are to grasp is that it is a very, very big deal that we have access into the most holy place. 
That is what Hebrews uh, 10 tells us. And and in Hebrews 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the most holy place. And, And you need to think about that, boldness. I don't think that the priests felt a lot of boldness when they entered into the most holy place. If I was Aaron, knowing what had been described in Leviticus 16, I would have felt trepidation. I would have been perhaps shaking a bit with the idea of being the one that had to do that. To enter into the most holy place, into the presence of God like that as a sinner, as one defiled myself by sin. Yes, maybe I clean all my garments and I have this nice turban on my head, but I'm not clean internally. Who am I to enter into the holy of holies? But that's what Hebrews is telling us, brothers and sisters. It's saying, you have boldness to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 20. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. He says his flesh is effectively the veil that you enter through. Now that's how you get in through the body of Christ. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now sometimes we we say these things and we try to understand, okay, this is good, I have entrance into the holy place, but we can't see it, we can't feel it we can't taste it so how do you experience these things well of course it comes by way of a spiritual apprehension of these truths and one of the applications i would would make for us brothers and sisters is that you do not need to stand afar off any longer what i mean by that is people live sometimes for years in in sinful isolation they they seek to effectively hide themselves from god though they know that that's not possible they hide themselves from other people because they feel this guilt. They feel the weight of the guilt or they feel the intensity of the shame and they, they hide away. There's no boldness there. There's no confidence. There's no assurance. That's, that's how some people experience the reality of their sins without hope. They, they feel a hopelessness, a despair. They don't feel a solution. And what I'm here to tell us is that we are called to have confidence. We are called to have assurance that when we have drawn near through Jesus Christ, that we need not isolate, we need not hide, we need not fear any longer. But indeed, we will be accepted by God through his son, Jesus. Of course, you know that sin is, by definition, is an isolating thing. Uh, sin is fundamentally anti-relational. It's anti-relational when it comes to our relationship with God because it's a rebellion and it involves a separation and a hostility. It's also anti-relational in terms of human relationships. It produces disharmony in our relationships. So sin isolates, it separates. It, no wonder hell is described as an a, a outer darkness. and a, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of the ultimate isolation. And we need not be isolated any longer because we have a way into the most holy place. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and any sinner who plunges themselves beneath that flood loses all their guilty stains. And so brothers and sisters, come to the Lamb of God. Do not stand afar off. Come with confidence. Come with assurance. 
that we are received as we enter through his body that is the veil of his flesh. Now lastly, we come to the centurion's confession of faith recorded in verse 47. As Luke records his confession, this is what Luke writes. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Uh, This testimony of the centurion is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, You'll notice if you look at Matthew and Mark's account, they record his words as saying, this man was the son of God. Of course, we can reconcile the two to understand that he said both of these things. He expressed his conviction that Jesus was a righteous man, and he expressed his conviction that Jesus was the Son of God. And what is the significance of this? Why is this pointed out to us? Well, it seems that the gospel writers want us to see some of the few testimonies of faith in the midst of what was taking place. Isn't it noteworthy that the people that you would perhaps expect to receive this truth, didn't. You might think, well, this is the moment at which the Jews, uh, seeing what's taking place, should receive this. Or we should say, uh, the disciples, all the disciples should have been there. We know John was present uh, for a time, at least, in John 19. But we think, where were all the disciples witnessing what he had said was going to happen? If they were there, they're not noted. Who are the believing ones in this passage? Well, Luke has told us about a thief on the cross and a Roman centurion. That's strange. That's unexpected. Isn't that a picture of how uh, God is at work in unexpected ways to draw to himself unexpected people? We'll, we'll read uh, in the next passage about Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who buried the body of Jesus. That didn't seem very expected either. A member of the Sanhedrin caring for the body of Christ, the same group that condemned Jesus. This seems to be what Luke is getting at, but notice also there's a phrase here in this verse that's important in Luke. It says, the centurion glorified God, and then he says, this was a righteous man. And the reason that that phrase glorified God is important is if you study the other six or seven occurrences of that phrase in Luke, it's always in an instance when somebody is professing faith in the Redeemer receiving the truth about the Redeemer. Uh, and we see this in a number of cases, going back to Luke chapter 2 and, and push through all, all throughout Luke. When people glorify God, there is a recognition of the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so I think Luke wants us to see the centurion's confession as a faith confession. Now you might say, to, to say that Jesus is a righteous man isn't to say all that much about him, but it's actually quite significant, especially if we bring it into connection with saying he's the son of God. Now how much the centurion knew or understood about what was taking place, I can't say. I, we don't, we're not in his mind. But what I would say is that by saying that Jesus was a righteous man, he was effectively alluding to a very important prophetic passage. One thing, of course, is he's recognizing Jesus is not guilty. But I think he's recognizing a bit more than that. Isaiah 53, verse 11. How is Jesus described in Isaiah 53, 11? Well, it says that he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. 
for he shall bear their iniquities. Whether or not the centurion knew that that's effectively what he was saying, I do not know. But he was right to say that Jesus was a righteous man. He was right to identify that Jesus was innocent. And by being innocent and then dying for for sin, Jesus was fulfilling that role of the righteous suffering servant, bearing the sins of many. And so this Roman centurion is is important. Uh, He he had witnessed all that had taken place, but not everybody that witnessed these things under, received them in a faith way. There was not all a reception. We, we read about the people that beat their breasts as they saw what had happened, the things that had taken place. But the centurion, he received Christ in some way or another as he prof- professed this statement about Jesus. He, he had seen all of this taking place. The centurion had had heard Jesus say upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was an amazing thing to hear of a man dying upon a cross. He had heard and seen Jesus saying, Care for my mother. Speaking to John, saying, Care for my mother while I'm gone. Behold your son, behold your mother. The centurion listened as Jesus told the thief on the, the cross who repented later and said, the thief that had repented, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is this man saying such things? The centurion had watched from noon until 3 p.m. as darkness fell upon the land, that foreboding darkness. And the centurion had, he had probably felt the earthquake under his feet. And having seen all of these things and having heard the words of Christ say, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. From this, the Roman centurion concluded, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this was a righteous man. I don't know how much the centurion understood that day. Of course, we know the thief on the cross probably didn't understand a whole lot. And thanks be to God, it doesn't require a PhD level of knowledge about Christian doctrine to be saved. <laughs> Only a simplest confession of faith and, uh, to Jesus, save me, is, is indeed sufficient. And the centurion's confession is important because it remains the confession of every disciple of Jesus Christ who confesses with Peter, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We too, we say, this man is the Son of God. We say, Jesus is the righteous one who bore our sins. And so as we come to this narrative again this evening, brothers and sisters, I... I encourage us to consider these questions of who is Jesus? Was Jesus just a random preacher in first century Judea who died a meaningless death because he got on the bad side of the Jewish leaders? Or is he the Son of God? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And these are crucial questions to answer. We must answer these questions for ourselves. We must, uh, with a faith conviction, answer that, yes, he is the Son of God. Or we will join the world in simply ignoring this or rejecting this message. And the testimony of God's holy and inspired word is this. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His death and his resurrection is the only salvation that there is. There is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. 
And so my prayer for each of us in preparing this message is that all of us would have the same conviction as the Roman centurion, that we would join him in his confession of faith, and we would say, truly, this man is the Son of God. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do confess our faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We give thanks for all that you have recorded for us in the Gospels, that we can understand what you've done. We can see uh, through the reading of Scripture, through the hearing of your word, what you have done to save us. And so I ask, Father, that this message would be impressed upon our hearts, that uh, we would be moved by the things that we read here, and that each of us would receive this message unto the salvation of our souls. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.